Welcome to the uh, third episode of Five Questions About Israel. Shalom, Dan Brotman. Shalom, Yaron Dekel. Today's topic is how to balance domestic philanthropic needs in Canada with the needs of Israeli organizations, as we usually have three guests. Please then introduce our guests. So our first guest is Matthew Freiberg. He is a principal and co-founder of Trove Developments, a residential real estate development company based in the GTA. He was the co-chair of the UJA Toronto's community campaign in 2021 and 2022, and he's also a member of JFNA's National Young Leadership Cabinet Program. Our second guest is Joanna Mursky-Wexler. She is an Atlantic Jewish Council representative on the National Siege Board. She's the chair of the board of directors of the Shar Shalom Congregation in Halifax and teaches language and Jewish history at Hebrew School. She's active in interfaith circles uh, and has been for more than 35 years. And we have Miriam Goldstein here in Windsor, Ontario. Miriam Goldstein Cedroni is a theater director, producer, and writer. She's a social media coordinator, and she also happens to be a board member of the Windsor Jewish Federation. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. Excited to so, be here. So we're going to start... Uh, but with a simple question, which is, tell us about your relationship with Israel. And Miriam, let's start with you. Um, my family's relationship with Israel, we have family who lives in uh, Ranana. They went, we had one surviving member after the Holocaust who moved to Israel um, and settled there. Uh, I've been many times throughout my life, my best friend growing up, my um oldest friend was born there, immigrated to Canada. So I went back with her family as well. I went on birthright. Um, in my early 20s, I actually thought very seriously about making Aliyah. Um, I ended up going to theater school in England instead. <laughs> um, and I also think that I've been brought up to believe that it's incredibly important that we have a relationship with Israel. But I think that gets more complicated. And as I raise my own children, I find that the discussions are very different in our house than they were in mine. Joanna, your relationship with Israel. I also have had a, a lifelong relationship with Israel. I have some extended family there, um, but really I've explored there on my own. I worked on kibbutz for a few months and traveled extensively to the region a number of times. Um, I used to be the Camp Kadima director many years ago, and we had a number of kids come up from the partnership region in the north. Um, and so I really built a lot of very strong relationships with those uh, CITs that then I've tried my best to connect with over time. So um, I, too, think that that relationship has gotten more complicated. Um, I also think that that relationship remains really important. Um, but that actually our dynamics are changed. And so I feel very connected in the sense of, uh, I wanna be part of, of that connection, whatever that might mean. And Matthew. My relationship goes back to with Israel almost as long as I've been born. I spent uh, about two and a half months there as a six year old, just you know going to the beach in the swimming pool and eating ice cream, but really just living there and having a good time. Uh, been back a number of times. Uh, I was on the March of Living, I spent a, camp summer through Camp Ramah in Israel, and then was uh, spent a year after high school 
studying there and have been back a number of times. My brother was a lone soldier there. And uh, my other brother actually just made Aliyah about a year ago with his family. So I'd like to uh, ask you uh, a challenging uh, <clears throat> request to tell us a little bit or something about the, your Jewish community that most people do not know. Joanna. How do I know what most people know and what they don't? Um, our community here in Halifax, and I'm going to say is, is maybe different than people expect to hear about a community because the Atlantic Jewish Council overall kind of manages all of our different communities. Um, and we have a very, um, so it's sort, we're, we're a city at Halifax, and then we're also a region, the Atlantic that share a lot of similarities. Um, we have a large immigrant population. We also have um, a large university population, so transient. We have seven universities in driving distance from Halifax. So we have a lot of professors who, who are in and out. We've also had tremendous growth. In, after the pandemic, the Atlantic region and Halifax in particular has had more growth per capita than any other region in Canada. And that's true for Jews as well, right? We're seeing, we're just seeing Jewish people come up from the States, from across Canada um, and from Israel. So, so our demographics are shifting in maybe unexpected ways. Matthew, most uh, Canadians do know Toronto uh, Federation. I think it's the largest uh, federation in the country. What would you share with the people about Toronto um, community, the uh, Jewish community in Toronto? that people might not know? I think some we have an amazing, amazing community. As part of, a, uh, as Dan said in the intro, I'm um, part of the National Young Leadership Program. And you meet people, you know, I meet Jews and other young adults from anywhere from, you know, Los Angeles, New York, and Miami to Cincinnati, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, and Buffalo. And what really uh, comes across every time I'm with this cohort is how um, incredible and dedicated and committed our community is. Um, I think we, as a federation locally, we raise the most money per capita out of any federation in North America. And I think what other people don't know is that people think really about the community mostly as a, you know, white Ashkenazi, you know, community, which is for sure the majority. But we have a very large uh, Russian speaking community, a very large Israeli community. Uh, and across the religious spectrum, I think we also have a very diverse population, everything from, um, you know, Um, you know, cultural Jews all the way, you know, through, you know, traditional Jews to, um, you know, ultra-Orthodox Jews. And, you know, everybody interacts with the community in their own way. Um, some through the, some groups through the Federation, some groups, you know, completely unaffiliated with the Federation movement. But I think there's a little bit of something for everybody in our community. And we really have that broad spectrum of diverse people and diverse views in the community. And uh, Miriam, can you share a little bit about the Windsor uh, community? Windsor is um, very unique. I've lived in a few different Jewish communities and my family is spread out in much larger Jewish communities. Windsor is one of the smallest, um, probably in Canada. I'm sure there are smaller, but we, as long as I have been a part of our community, which is most of my life, um, We've been searching for identity, and I find that it really shifts quite drastically um, moment to moment and depending on the issue. And 
it's really interesting coming into sitting on the board and raising a family here, um, watching these arguments happen. These are arguments and conversations that I watched my parents have and my grandmother have. Um, and so we've really been looking for identity as long as I've been alive. Um, what does it mean to be Jewish in Windsor? But we're very diverse and we're diverse in opinion, we're diverse in ethnicity. Um, and I think Windsor has a reputation for being a bit spiky on the outside. And um, what I have found in coming back is that once you get past that spiky little exterior, we have a really warm, squishy center and people are very emotional here. Um, and really, it's a, a very good place to find connection and make really deep, strong connections with other people, um, which I have found difficult in other cities. So it's it's a really bizarre dichotomy of uh, personality. Matthew, how do you think the younger generation feels about philanthropy, where that philanthropy goes compared to their parents or grandparents? I think that our parents and grandparents, you know, had the sense of obligation that you know, giving to the community, whatever institution it was, was almost like a Jewish tax. I've heard that, you know, phrase used so often that people said, you know, the community is so important that regardless if I am participating actively or passively, it's so important to exist that I still need to contribute to it. I think in the dynamic of a younger generation, and I've seen this through some of the fundraising I do, is a lot of the people are saying, what am I getting out of this? What am I getting? Not what am I giving or why I should be giving, what can I give back? Am I going to an event? Am I going to meet somebody? Am I going to get connected to somebody, you know, professionally? And that's why I should join rather than, um, you know, just for the altruistic sense. I think also the other thing is that people even who are committed to causes, they don't just want to write a check. They want to go and, you know, roll up their sleeves and go to a, you know, donate uh, and sort clothes at a clothing driver, a food bank, and, you know, help distribute, you know, packages on Passover. Um, I think they want to get their kids involved and what's the way that they can do it. I think uh, convincing people or getting them on side that we should be donating because the community needs us and the holistic community. And, you know, it's not just the more exciting projects that need to be funded, but the whole community needs to be funded. Um, I think that's the real challenge these days of how to open people's eyes to that um, need for just the community in general. Miriam, your perspective? I think uh, Matthew's absolutely right. I, th I think a lot of the conversations that we're having right now on our board and right now in our community are very much the, the response we get of, well, what am I going to get? What does my donation actually go to? What, what are we gaining as a community if we keep funding these organizations? What programming like they and people really want to be involved um a lot of people in our age group i find they absolutely they want to help run events they want to have a say in the type of programming they want their kids to have things to go to that are interesting um and what's really i found interesting when i joined the board we have a bylaw that actually says a donation that's meaningful to you which was changed from when my parents were involved um, which used to just say there was a minimum donation. And now it's whatever's meaningful to you, which means you can donate time. You can donate um, a dollar amount. You can donate to specific programming and it's whatever means something to you. So that's a really interesting distinction. Joanna? So, I mean, the Halifax community is much smaller, like tiny compared to Toronto, even tiny compared to Windsor. Um, 
and the, all of those resources, financial and otherwise, are very, very limited. Um, which doesn't mean it's important. And I absolutely agree that there are generational differences. And I like that that you've been consistently asking that in the podcast, Dan, because uh, I think it's relevant to how we need to think about the future and how we're able to fundraise dollars and utilize those dollars. So whereas I totally agree with Matthew, there is a sort of a, an obligation, a sense of duty, right? An obligation, a Jewish tax um, for an older generation. For Gen Xers like me, who are a tiny generation um, who are who are invited to the table, but not really welcome to speak all that much. And um, we're sort of what what identifies us as a generation is like, I need to see this for myself. I need to uh, investigate, right? For millennials, that sense of value and meaning is much more important. Miriam touched on this, right? We want to, they want to roll up their sleeves and feel like it's meaningful to them, that the value is a real value. So I think for those of us who fundraise, and then really to dictate what the budget looks like, right? Because the, the budget actually dictates our value set. And that has to speak to all three of those generations. So what does that mean when you're doing a, a budget that talks about Canada versus Israel versus what we do in Canada? How do we fund it? What are the program emphasis? Those things really matter generationally when we're, and we need to be really transparent about it. And, and this brings us to the uh, hardcore of our uh, podcast uh, topic today. And you don't have to agree, uh, obviously, you can uh, totally disagree. And I wonder, um, do you uh, uh, personally and your community fo focus philanthropy on local or Israeli causes or both? And what's the breakdown? Matthew? I think in the annual campaign, in Toronto, it's about 30% of the money goes overseas, part to our uh, sister cities in Eilat Eilat and Sterot, and part to just uh, the Jewish agency and you know their priorities, and 70% stays local. And uh, how do you feel about that? Oh, I, I think you know there's a concept in Judaism about you know taking care of the people at home first, and then you know you're you know in your city, and then your country, and then you know, uh, you know outside of that. Uh, I think the community is only you know, while I think it's important to support Israel, and I'm glad that we do, and, you know, there's definitely always need there. Um, I think it's important to try and help the people locally as much as possible to have a strong community, which will enable you um, to then, you know, be able to do more work outside. Um, having said that, I think, you know, you can't focus all the attention locally. Um, you know, back to the initial question, I think it's important for every Jew to have a relationship with Israel. Um, how you define it, how um, involved that relationship, how complex that relationship is going to be a different story for every Jewish person. But I think the fact that the Federation and the community supports projects in Israel helps form or establish that relationship for some people in the community, um, as well as, you know, take care of, you know, vulnerable people in Israel. It doesn't only the support I think that we provide overseas, you know, on one hand takes care of vulnerable people in Israel. On the other hand, it's Take, you know, doing partner projects with high schools and STEM programs, um, which enables kids, you know, here and overseas to meet each other, get connected to each other, you know, not vulnerable kids, rather just, you know, how are we going to introduce kids in Toronto to how kids yeah. think, talk, interact, you know, in Israel. 
Matthew, just to follow up, um, you were talking about taking care of our own first. When you say our own and local, is that Toronto? Is that communities throughout Canada? It, sort of what do you define as local in terms of priorities? I think each community needs to take care of itself first. So, you know, in Toronto, I think we need to take care of, you know, yes, we have a bigger population, maybe, you know, bigger campaign dollars than Windsor or Halifax, but we also have way more vulnerable people and people in need. I forget exactly what the number is, but I think it's like 25 or 30,000 Jews uh, in Toronto that are in need or in, under the poverty line, um, which is, you know, an enormous, you know, amount and shocking. Um, but thankfully we have a system set up that can, you know, do our best to help those people. So I think, you know, we need to take care of the people in Toronto first, uh, just like, you know, Joanna needs to take care of the people in Atlantic Canada first. Uh, and then, you know, I think there's some shared resources pool through UIA and other programs that can, you know, help mm. cross Canada before we go elsewhere. Joanna, what's the situation in the Atlantic Canada? Halifax is the center of four provinces, if I'm not wrong. So, uh, yeah, certainly the largest, Halifax is the largest Jewish community across Canada. And and certainly talking to some of these communities are very small in terms of their leadership, like a handful of people. Um, and, and to be honest, in Halifax, it's not much larger than that. Um, but I'm not entirely sure what the numbers are. And Halifax, the Atlantic region is a bit strange because there's an equalization process across the country, like funds go central and then come back um, to make sure that certain pockets of work can get done. Um, I think the number is about 20% goes to Israel, 80% stays local. Um, and I would actually say that our organizations are chronically underfunded. Um, and it's not about necessarily helping um, individuals in need as much as, as really having the resources to do the basic Jewish work, right, of community building or advocacy, um, fighting anti-Semitism, all of these important pillars that we take for granted. Because Atlantic, it's, it's a matter of scale and scope, right? So if you have a large staff in Toronto dealing with a large amount of problems and a large amount of resources, um, at the same time, when you drill it down to the scope and of scale of Halifax, you're talking about only a few individuals to do all that work. So we tend to be chronically underfunded. But I agree strongly with Matthew that investing uh, a certain portion of the dollars in Israel uh, maintains a, a relationship. Like a, that connection of philanthropy is, is important. Do I think that it should be a little less than 20% for our region? Probably. Um, but I have more complicated views, right? Because it's that's about intentionality, not just how much we send, but but how we send. Miriam? Um, so in Windsor, we keep about 82% um, of everything that's raised for our campaign. And then uh, the remainder pays for our campaign expenses. And whatever's left over after that is what gets sent to Israel. And I may be wrong in saying this, but I believe that was implemented at a time when... Um, Windsor was really struggling. And so they actually changed the ratio of what we were sending overseas because we were struggling. This was, I, be I believe, I may be wrong in the seventies or eighties. Um, and I know that was looked at again in the nineties. Um, and I think we're coming into a period of time in Windsor where we're going to have to look at that 
again, now sometimes we send very little because our campaign expenses are higher. And so um, we may be in exactly the right model. But Windsor, um, you know, Dan has touched on this before on the podcast, and we talk about this a lot in our board meetings, that Windsor demographically is shrinking. We're a much older community. We're one of the oldest communities um, in, I believe, North America. And so what that means is our donor base is smaller. And we've talked already about how younger generations look at different things when they're donating. And so our, our donations are actually shrinking. Um, and I think it's, um, it's going to be a big discussion. Where does that money need to go in our community and how much are we sending where? And it's, it's really going to be a, a really big discussion coming up. And I just want to jump in there. Um, so we actually implemented the system that Miriam described only recently. It was actually under my tenure. Um, basically, what happens is centrally, it's decided based on the community's population and other considerations, what the community's fair share is based on what they can afford. Um, but what was determined as Windsor's fair share is just totally out of reach. I mean, I believe the, the formula was determined decades ago, and it's no longer based on who we are today. So we as a community made a unilateral decision that we were going to implement this formula. Um, it was not in discussion with anyone else in Toronto. Um, but even what we're giving now is really you know, beyond our reach. We're a community that is struggling to afford electricity. We can't provide social services for our members in need, and we don't receive assistance from larger, wealthier communities in Canada. And there's a debate, which I'm sure we're going to discuss as we continue this conversation. Um, should larger Canadian cities be sending money to Israel when smaller communities in Canada and their own country, going back to what Matthew was saying, are really struggling to survive and provide social services locally? Um, what's your, what's, maybe, maybe we'll ask our guest about your view, Matthew. I really think it's a balancing act because, you know, Windsor used, you know, as an example, be, you know, be quite a big, you know, flourishing population similar to Winnipeg. Obviously, Winnipeg was bigger, um, you know through whatever cycles and auto industry, you know, it's, you know, the population has, you know, the Jewish population has decreased. And, you know, a lot of people have probably uh, moved to Toronto, moved to Ottawa, I don't know, maybe moved to Detroit, and, you know, the Jewish population is down. So I think it's a very hard discussion without being a resident or having spent any real significant time there. Hard for me to say, but, you know, should, you know, you know, nationally, should Canada or other communities, maybe Calgary, Edmonton, Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal say, you know, this is important for us to have a foothold in Windsor and have a community there. Or should we, you know, say collectively, you know, and I'm not talking about supporting the vulnerable people and the poor people, but, you know, I'm talking about institutions like a JCC or a day school, you know, are the, is the population dwindling so much that not, I don't want to use the word, you know, the phrase throwing good after bad, but is it getting so small that it's just not worth having you know, supporting these community institutions and rather, you know, like maybe come up with a model where people from Windsor go to day school in Detroit, you know, like there's a big community there and they can, you know, maybe have assistance to go there. Or, you know, we say like, we're happy to support the social service agencies, but we're not going to, you know, support the, you know, community building agencies. Um, I think it's hard to justify, you know, like we said, you know, Toronto's got a bigger campaign. We have a lot more uh, vulnerable people that need social services assistance, I think it would be a very hard sell to donors locally here to say, 
some of your money is going to support a JCC in Windsor when we have three JCCs ourselves, and one of them, you know, is you know quite older and needs you know big renovations and improvements. And I'm not sure how well that would sit with donors here. Joanna, would you expect the uh, largest communities in the country to come and assist Halifax? It's a very complex question because there's a lot of different factors and even moving parts, right? Like we don't, for example, in, in Atlantic Canada, there's no community here that has a JCC period. We don't have one. Um, so we do social and cultural programming out of our synagogues. That's a big challenge for our new immigrant populations from Israel who associate synagogues with something entirely different from what Israeli nationality kind of is, even their comfort level to go inside. Um, so, so there's a lot of factors. Like I, I don't even think I have enough information uh, to have a real discussion about it, only to say it's a really important discussion we should probably be having. And we should be probably having it in, in this kind of a generational space, right? Um, as opposed to um, as opposed to institutional things that were decided decades ago um, to still be sort of a status quo. Uh, on a certain level, I think every community understands their own needs and needs to be flexible and not necessarily thinking that uh, larger communities are going to um, decide what's worth spending money on and what isn't. I would actually argue the opposite of you, Matthew. I would say that social services are things that we as Canadians can expect our, our government to do. Um, but the community institutional building, like Jewish education, making sure we can have advocacy across the country um, is critically important to Jewish continuity and survival nationally um, to make sure that we can address both issues of anti-Semitism, but also issues of Jewish continuity um, across the country. So there's a space for equalization. Uh, and, and I think the Fair Share Initiative tries to speak to that. And I've just written here in my notes, like maybe it's time for us to really investigate what are those, what are those details around, around how that works? Because I'm not so sure that, uh, that it's entirely a transparent process and needs some real thought as to what do we value as communities? What do we value nationally? And how do we all have a voice in that process? Mir Miriam, your view about this uh, sensitive issue? I think um, Joanna's right. It's, it's very complicated. And I think it warrants a, a lot more discussion than we've been having and much more transparency. Um, I can say, I've heard many arguments over the course of my lifetime, but coming into the board, we're currently having discussions about what the future of our Jewish community looks like. Does it involve a JCC? Where does the Federation go if the JCC, which is a shared space, um, if the JCC goes away, what does that look like? Where does the programming come from? And one of the, the major pushbacks is that people who are more secular, um, much like myself, have a hard time associating shuls and synagogues with a space that would be welcoming. Um, and that's a big discussion that's happening amongst my peers. And we all sit on the board and we're coming into a time period where we're going to have to really examine, well, where is all of our money going line by line? What is it doing for us? And, 
And is this model even working anymore? This is a model that was set up in a very different era and it may not be sustainable long-term, but then what does that mean? And so I think we're standing on a bit of a precipice generationally and looking over and we're going to have to really have some very hard discussions about what our future looks like both globally and nationally and then on a really micro level within our own communities. Um, and to respond to Matthew, a lot of families in Windsor actually do send their kids to Jewish Day School in Detroit because we don't have one here. We can't sustain one. I don't know that we ever did, though. But we're unable to help subsidize uh, tuition at those schools. I'm going to I'm going to share an interesting piece of data from 2020 that's going to lead to a question. So I don't know if you knew this, but as of 2020, Israel is the 19th wealthiest country in the world in terms of GDP per capita. In fact, it's wealthier than Canada. Uh, Israel is, was 19, Canada was 20. So there's a question, which is Israel is an OECD country and is wealthier than Canada. Do you think Israel needs our financial support? Why or why not? And we're going to start with Joanna. That's that, which I don't think is a big surprise to any of us here. For those of us in Canada, we have big needs here um, and they're diverse across the country. If you look just at the numbers, if you look transactionally, then no, uh, Israel doesn't need our money. But um, I would say that we're having some crises, right? We're having some crises in Jewish communities globally. There's a there's a crisis of succession and change as we've been talking about, right? How do we fundraise? How, how the different generations approach Jewish community and, and our involvement? There's a, a political crisis in Israel that uh, we're talking about as if it's new, but it's actually been unstable since 2018, right? And I think perhaps the biggest crisis of all is this, uh, the the growing rift between diaspora Jewry and and Israeli Jews or Israel as a as a country, and that's the crisis that I think that this question really addresses, because how we give is is really we can't think of it as like why do we give to Israel because they need the money like no, but you might bolster specific areas of Israeli life that we find shared values in, or we might be investing in our own identity by saying, I give because I support this, right? And that that's meaningful to us. Um, or you might feel, and I know this is very contentious, but you might feel like you have a, a, the right to have a voice if you give, right? Or how you give it. Um, and I think that Israel, while it doesn't really need the, the funds empirically, might suggest that the Israeli perspective is that Canadian Jewry is useful in terms of advocacy or in terms of um, diplomatic communities, um, political or business connections to provide different opportunities for Israel. Um, but again, that, that's actually all transactional. That's about what do you give? What do we get? What do we get? What do we give? What do you get? But actually, I think that we need in the future uh, to be advocating for giving that's actually relational as opposed to transactional. Um, and part of that rift between us um, is actually just a lack of understanding and knowing each other. And a lot of those person-to-person -person programs, and there's a few really good examples, right? Partnership's a good example. Um, Yaron, you told me about a, a wonderful program that's always in the back of my head around doing good work, doing development work in third-party countries that need help 
with both Israelis and diaspora Jews. These are the kinds of programs that allow us to know each other and investing in programs that allow us to know each other better as human beings with with passions and loves and likes and dislikes and flaws and all the things that make us all human in that way and understanding the shared values between us. That's good giving. So that was a long answer to your question, but I think how we give is, is really important as opposed to the question of what do they need? Like how we give is more important than that. Matthew, does Israel need our money? Uh, I think I'll take the other side of Joanna's answer um, and say, I think, yes, they do. Um, So you kind of gave the, you know, GDP stats and yes, you know, Israel is population wise, quite a small population, as we all know um, on the, so, you know, I think there can be some outliers, you know, you have a couple of people that sold ways and sold, sold mobile and, you know, have become billionaires themselves that can really skew the numbers. I think if you look into it, a, you know, especially people, making Aliyah in, you know, refugee situations coming from, you know, former Soviet Union now coming from Ukraine came coming from, you know, uh, Venezuela when they, you know, came there, like these people are coming with next to nothing. Uh, They need a lot of help. Um, And I think that while Israelis as a culture like to help, and I think there's, you know, a stat about, you know, Israel has the most, the highest number of uh, NGOs or, you know, not non for profits, you know, maybe in anywhere in the world per capita or something like that. I think Israelis don't really know how to give philanthropically. And it's not in there, especially the ones that have become, you know, uber successful or even moderately successful. It's not part of their DNA. And I was in Israel um, last summer on a Karen Asad trip, and we were meeting with a guy at, who works with tech startups and entrepreneurs. And this whole interesting discussion came how he was agreeing, you know, he's American born originally now living there working with all kinds of, you know, in the, in the tech world. And he says, you know, the same thing that these people think they've made the money and it's mine and they don't have this sense of giving back where I think that's more ingrained in us, you know, in diaspora jury that you need to give. And so while the country statistically might be doing quite well, um, I think, you know, for anybody that's been to Israel and you walk into some of the very poor neighborhoods in Jerusalem or um, in Bat Yam or in uh, Eilat, you know, and these are just some of the Toronto partnership communities, you see that there's a lot of need and it goes way beyond the ability, the social service service agencies in Israel um, to be supported. And so I think very much so that uh, at this point, maybe they don't need us. They have the ability to fund themselves internally they're not at a stage where they are doing it. And so given that, I think they do need diaspora jury help. And just an, another interesting fact. Um, so actually income inequality in Israel has risen uh, in the past few years and almost 2 million Israelis now live in poverty, which is a little over the 20% of the population. Uh, so going back to what Matthew was saying, a highly unequal country. Uh, Miriam, does Israel need our money? I sort of straddle both of those arguments a little bit. Um, I do think it's important that we continue to support, but I think a little bit, it's a question of directional funding. Um, So being very specific and clear about where's that money actually going and what is it actually funding? So if you look, and there's not a ton of transparency here, and um, I actually was trying to read a bunch of articles leading up to this 
And I couldn't really find that answer. I got a lot of generic statements that it goes to hospitals, it goes to religious programming, it goes to, I don't know, all of these different things. But what does that actually look like? So maybe it's not a question of if, but where, where does that actually go? Um, what percentage of our dollar is going to hospitals? What percentage of our dollar is going to support uh, Holocaust survivors who statistically live well below the poverty line in Israel and really need support? What What is going to those new refugees? How much of that can we pull back and help our own Ukrainian and Russian speaking um, refugees? What And so maybe it's a question of not if, but ratio, right? Like, yeah. And and really looking at those percentages and finding out because, yes, economically, Israel is doing really well. That doesn't mean they don't need help, but maybe it's more specific. Maybe it's more mm. um, directed. Uh, we have to wrap up. But before we uh, conclude, I'd like to ask uh, the last final question. And I appreciate a short answer for the question, though we know this issue and topic is is complex and, and we can talk uh, about it for uh, for hours. How do you see the uh, the financial relationship between Israel and the diaspora changing in the years to come, in in the future, Joanna? In a nutshell. In a nutshell, um, I want to um, jump off what Miriam just said uh, that because generationally we have different values around fundraising, that we need to have it be relationship oriented or project oriented. It needs to be about how we come together and or we need to see strong value in where it's going. And I would say that we would see greater philanthropy arise in donations if we had a much stronger sense, a much more transparent sense of where it was going and why that was meaningful. And hopefully in the process, also build relationships by going there, seeing it happen in real time. Miriam? Oh, I think we all know. I, I agree with that statement. Um, I And I agree. I actually think that with more transparency and more specificity in what that money is doing, you might actually see an increase. Um, so rather than it just being a percentage of UJA donations or JNF donations, it would be, oh, we also have this fund for this and people would donate to that as well. I think you might see an increase of generosity actually in the diaspora if we had a very clear sense of what we were accomplishing. And Matthew, the final word. Uh, I think two sides. Uh, I think, unfortunately, given the political turmoil and a lot of the backlash to the government, uh, I think a younger generation of donors may unfortunately want to pull back some of their donations. Um, while they might be, you know, protesting the government's actions, they're actually, unfortunately, hurting the vulnerable population of Israel. Um, but I could see that for sure happening if this rift continues to widen. Uh, and on the other side, I agree with uh, Miriam and Joanna that um, people are looking for projects uh, to support and projects to fund. And if it's partnership projects or if it's other specific projects that people or communities pick up, I think those could be, um, you know, those could flourish and those could do really well. Whereas just giving to the general pot that you're not even seeing in your local community in action could suffer. Well, with that, I'd like to thank Matthew Freiberg, Joanna Mursky-Wexler, and Miriam Goldstein-Cedroni. This was a fascinating conversation, and I'm sure we'll have many more like these. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you. That was a very interesting discussion.
discussion, Dan, and I wonder what do you take from this uh, discussion and what's your view? So some of the main takeaways for me were that there really are generational differences in how we approach philanthropy in the Jewish world. Uh, younger people, it sounds like, don't really want to give to a general pot. They want to give to specific projects where they can see tangible results. And it sounds like more transparency is needed in order to appeal to the younger generation. What was your takeaway? I think uh, I am. I feel connected to what Joanna said, and and the, the guests agree that uh, when we talk about uh, uh, the Jewish people, what does it mean to support Israel? What does it mean if there is no philanthropy to the center of the Jewish people? So on the moral issue, I I agree that uh, assistance and and uh, and uh, support is is needed. And on the other part, uh, I would like to mention that lots of the money, more and more money, comes back to the community. For instance, to support uh, programs as uh, as uh, Massa or or the what the, the uh, Joanna uh, mentioned, the uh, the Project Ten of people coming from different parts of the world, or or birthright, or you know, it comes back to communities. I think it's a change, also in Israel, that it, the money doesn't just come to Israeli institutions, but the question is obviously how it comes back to support. And it, I think nowadays, Dan, it works both ways. It's not just the diaspora supports Israel, it's how Israel supports a Jewish community. Because I believe that a strong Jewish community in Windsor and in Halifax, in Toronto and Montreal, in Vancouver and in Ottawa, Calgary and Edmonton is important for the state of Israel. And I believe that a strong Israeli state is important for the Jewish community around, around the world. So it works both ways, but I'm, I feel that I'm connected to the, um, the bottom line of uh, looking at the donations and the, the, uh, the goal of the donations and where are they going to be, where the money is going to be used is important, but I think it's, it's, it's a continuous support which has to continue. That's my view. Whereas my view is slightly different. Um, you know, living in a community that's really dealing with many financial struggles, we don't receive support from larger Jewish federations. And I think it's very difficult for us when we watch larger federations send money to support projects in Israel, which is a very wealthy country, whereas we struggle to pay for electricity, we can't uh, provide social services. So it's important to provide social services in Israel, but if we're not providing social services within communities in Ontario, I, I think one can't be at the expense of the other. It can be both, but right, right. now the smaller communities are just, many of them are not receiving that type of support from the larger ones. But would you like the uh, Canadian community to support programs as Birthright and and Massa and uh, Project 10 or onward that young Canadian Jews can participate? Well, that those those programs aren't very relevant for our community. We're not a community that has a lot of young people. So a lot of the, the programs that are being funded to connect Canadians and Israelis are irrelevant to a community that's majority 60 plus. So I think that, you know, we need a very type of special uh, Israel programming, Israel education that's different from the rest of the country. And what's on offer right now just isn't appropriate for our demographic. I'll tell you, I'm taking a lot of food for thought from this episode. I think it's important 
Me too. And speaking of episodes, stay tuned for our fourth episode, where we're going to focus on what are Israel's obligations towards diaspora communities. We'd love to hear from you, our listeners. You can get in touch by emailing us at israelquestions at the cjn.ca. Until next time. I'm Yaron Bekel. And I'm Dan Brotman. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.